Hello, welcome, and thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Akshar, Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce, and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, and our distinguished guests your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV, and we'll do our best to answer them during the show. It's my privilege to introduce my co-host. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research, best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business, regular contributor to Harvard Business Review, ZDNet, and often on CNBC, Fox Business, CNN. He's everywhere. And in my humble opinion, one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot. And I'm here with my awesome co-host, Bala Afshar. Uh, he's one of the top thought leaders in the industry, a digital evangelist himself, author, but more importantly, one of the top followers on Twitter for CMOs, CIOs, and executives around the world. But this show's not about us. This show's about all the cool guests we have. So who do we have to kick off segment one today on Disrupt TV? Yeah, episode 154, segment one. It's our privilege to have Rory DeBoff, Managing Director, Head of Content Innovation at Accenture Interactive. As head of content innovation for Accenture, Rory focuses on strategically applying new technologies such as virtual and augmented reality for businesses and brand transformation. Rory has over 20 years of experience, so she started when she was 10, working on digital <laughs> integrated media, create, creative and advertising and emerging technologies. Prior to Accenture, Rory was global head of digital strategy and executive vice president of Havas Media Group, where she led and managed strategic planning worldwide. Rory's a uh, regular public speaker, keynote uh, speaker and writer on marketing innovation and strategy. You can follow Rory's work on Twitter at Rory Duboff, R-O-R-I-D-U-B-O-F-F. Welcome Rory to the Shop TV. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for joining the show. You've been one of the leaders that have been thinking about future of work, augmented reality, you know, virtual reality. And now what you've been talking about here is really this thing coming to age of what we call XR and extended reality. So, so you've got a very interesting report that's out there. Um, talk a little about the report and some of the unique findings about, you know, what's being used, what was surprising. Are we there yet again? I mean, that's the question we always ask about AR, VR. I remember sitting at, you know, a Matayo conference in like 10 years ago, sitting on stage in Munich saying, it's here, it's coming. But this time it is a little different, right? Yeah, no, no, totally. So um, just to start with, I, I want to make sure that I provide a good definition for extended reality, because I think with all new technologies, there's all the jargon and people get easily distracted and confused um, by the terms. So we see that extended reality is basically the term we're using to encompass everything from augmented reality to virtual reality and mixed reality. So rather than sort of spend, I think a lot of people when this technology has been merging, spent so much time like, is this AR? Is this VR? Is this 360 video? Like what makes it what? And we're saying, you know what? Anything that is using real time game engine, anything that's using 3D models, anything that's kind of challenging your notion of what's real and not real, that all belongs in the category of extended reality. And grouping it together, we're able to think of it like less tactically and more like strategically in terms of how do we use what some people are proclaiming the next, the future of the web, right? The next generation of computing um, is extended reality. And so the report you were referencing, which was launched at the G20 this year, it was called um, uh, Waking Up to a New Reality, Building a Responsible Future for XR. 
And I think there's a few, that report's available online. I can, um, I can share on Twitter later a link to it. It's about 25 pages. But there's a few really interesting things that the report called out. Um, first of all, it sort of establishes that extended reality is, you know, people sort of think, like you said, it's, it's you know, hype, it's emerging, it might happen. But actually, no, it's, it's happening now. And it's all around you. And when you look at on the enterprise side, like inside of industries, whether it be manufacturing or healthcare or, or you know, uh, social services, there is already being used, whether it's augmented reality glasses um, or VR experiences for training purposes, that technology is being used. And in fact, there's data to now prove the effectiveness of that technology. And the report calls out that on average, XR in increases productivity by 21%. And that goes up to like 35% when you talk about health and social services. So what's really interesting is just that saying like, wow, this is a technology that is enhancing how people work. And, you know, whereas we've heard with things like artificial intelligence, people have been very nervous about, oh my God, the robots are going to replace our jobs. <laughs> we have technology, right, that is at not intending to replace. In fact, it was yesterday, the, or maybe it's this morning, I can't remember, the New York Times has an article out um, that says something like the first day on your job and here's your headset. So you should check that article out. It's, it's kind of talking all about that in terms of, you know, the ability to use AR glasses. In this case, the Times is calling out Microsoft's HoloLens mm. um, and, and be able to, to increase productivity. So that just in terms of, you know, making sure, like calling that out, that there is you know, solid proof that these technologies are, are helping and it ranges from hard skills to soft skills. So soft skills like, um, you know, in terms of uh, healthcare and, and, and training people or empathy, allowing people to sort of be in the shoes of somebody else who might be going through uh, conditions, whether it's dementia or PTSD or other areas where, you know, embodying yourself in, in that person's position, um, phenomenal impact. So that's sort of all of the the positives and the report calls out you know accelerators of xr which are 5g which is going to make you know increased connectivity and speed faster and then the report sorry go ahead oh, did, did I, was, I was gonna say yeah no no those those things are definitely uh, uh definitely great findings there as, as people are starting to understand how those uses and, and use cases are there and, and yeah. some good opportunities on how XR are working themselves. So, so keep going, it's, it's great. Oh yeah, I'm like realizing I'm giving this big spiel, so I don't want to just interrupt yeah, I'll stop, <laughs> I'm just going. Um, but I think, so, you know, there's all this excitement, but what, what the, the whole goal of this report is to say that the industry is further ahead than you realize. Um, on the consumer side, you know, AR is, mobile AR is spreading like, like wildfire in the sense that everybody who uses their cell phone and has tried an AR filter app for Snap or Facebook. I mean, that's just a blossoming area, but there are concerns. And if we look at what's happened, there are concerns we need to be aware of, right? With every great technology is all, you know, the potential backlash and, you know, coming off the heels of the last two years with the internet and all of the concerns, you know, about integrity of identity, security, um, authenticity of content and so the, it calls out you know basically when you're talking about xr 
things get even that more intense. So it's no longer, you know, when you think about data, and we went from an era of transactional data to sort of social data. So everything's about, you know, who you like and don't like and what you say online. And with XR, when you get headsets on people's faces and they're able to capture how somebody smiles and what they gaze at, we're talking about biometric data and human data. And that is very um, thinking through how we do we capture that data? What do you do with that data? Which then leads to concerns around areas like cybersecurity. You know, right now you have online profiles and identities, social media profiles. Uh, somebody yesterday on LinkedIn, I, I, they made a comment that they saw the, the CEO of Tesla um, looked at their profile and they were very excited and they went to look at it and it was the CEO of Tesla and the CEO of Facebook, the same person, which was obviously a fake profile, right? And then he had like a whole list of the CEO of Epic and the CEO of like, so there's all these concerns right now about that. But imagine when we have avatars and I'm not just talking avatars like, you know, character avatars, but realistic avatars. Uh, Facebook is doing a lot of work in that space with Oculus where the, the, the similarity uh, is so, it's uncanny. So being able to steal identities when we start putting, you know, more of our human self into these interactions is very important uh, to think about. And back to the, um, the authenticity of experiences, when you think about augmented reality, which is putting a digital overlay in the world around you, suddenly you think about like, uh, was it last year at the MoMA Museum in New York? Uh, there was an art exhibition where you went in, you held your phone up over the canvas it, um, and it put, you know, new content. And in fact, many museums around the world are doing that. It's like they're having, using augmented reality to enhance the, the right. art. Doing. But what happens when people decide to do that in a different way at, you know, right. whether at universities or institutions mm -hmm. and it's derogatory content. And so that filter, that layer of AR content and who owns that layer who has governance, who has copyright, those are things we need to think about. Um, and Roy Vala, actually, it gets really interesting, right? It's, it's gonna be like one big Black Mirror episode. Like, is it real? Is it not? What is going on? You know, yeah. am, I, am I being manipulated? Right, I mean, I'm a big question. The Black Mirror, have you seen the season of Black Mirror? I have. Uh, I've seen all six seasons, yeah. Yeah, this last season was completely I mean, amazing. In fact, I was telling someone that the, the another, there's like two more things the report calls out. So tech addiction is one of them. Mm. And until I saw the last season of Black Mirror, I was like, you know what? People say that about everything. They say that about like, you know, gaming and they say that about, you know, cell phones. And I, I get it, you know, I shouldn't be on my phone, but it was the second episode of Black Mirror where, where you really see the value of virtual reality like wow, I mean, it's the, just the interactive dating one or right. the other one, <laughs> yeah, <right>. <laughs> or <laughs> the one or one with the chip in someone's head. Which one? No, no, the la the last one where the, the yeah the the dating or the gaming term. the gaming and the dating app, right? Yeah, yeah that one, I was like, oh my god. I mean, they're addicted to it, right? It's showing uh, characters. Well, they're, they're addicted to the digital part, right? The yeah. digital piece is better than the actual in interaction in human life, yeah. right? What do you do when that happens? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So. There, there are all of these things that with extended reality, because it's such an immediate and personal 
space and, and therefore the power of it is just incredible. People talk about, you know, being in VR headsets, but the data and the, the impact, you know, there's, there's a lot of work that we need to think through. And there's a lot of research being done right now in terms of the impact of this technology on the brain. But I also think, you know, from a legal perspective, social, social perspective, uh, these are all areas that need to be looked at and planned for. So absolutely, absolutely. Kind of the, the, the report, what the focus is, is like, pay attention now, because, you know, this is happening, whether you see it or not, this is not just a hype. This right. is actually real technology making an impact. And it's just mm -hmm. going to continue to increease. Yeah, it was it was it was eye-opening to see the IDC forecast that uh, you know XR will overtake consumer spending uh, and reach uh, 12, 121 billion by 2023. So kind of a mind-numbing number. And yeah. then there was a three-year period of looking at patents and saw a five-fold increase in patents and 6,000 companies or startups, uh, which represented a 237% growth. In, in, in number of startups in this space. And, and uh, I'm sure that number is probably double um, because the window was from 14 to 16, 2014, 16. And the dangers you listed, yeah, misuse of personal data, cybersecurity, fake experiences. And there was one that was interesting, which was antisocial behavior. Is it yes. something you can talk about in terms yeah, of yeah. To that danger? I mean, some of the early VR social um, apps are suffering suffering from that or being challenged by it because you know as you imagine the same things that happen online on twitter on facebook when you know there's banter back and forth and people tend to hide behind their their you know online identity right. in the virtual space that's happening and what's even kind of a little bit stranger is it's not just words it's movements so there have been, you know, when you have different, <laughs> sounds kind of crazy, but avatars in a shared space, one avatar gets too close to the other avatar or, you know, or says things like, you know, people go online and sometimes it's younger people and say a lot of ridiculous things thinking mm -hmm. they can hide behind it. So the authentication of identity, I think is going to be very important. I think that, you know, the virtual world is it, it it's not going to be i don't think it will succeed if it's just a world where people go and become entirely different people without any accountability or responsibility uh, i was looking for escapism i mean that's the best way to do it but you got a great point right the, the point is um i mean in california we just passed a law here that if an ai interacts with you they have to declare they're an ai Right. And, and I think those things are going to have to happen. Otherwise, people are totally going to be confused. I mean, the manipulation and messaging and polit political sense, the manipulation in terms of like people's expectations, the spoofing of identities. I mean, those are all serious issues. So, yeah, yeah, definitely. Exactly. So, so do, you, do you think that will be part of the framework of ethical use of XR, whereby authentication will be, you know, a mandatory requirement? I think it should be a strong consideration. I mean, whether it's a, you know, sometimes you do need anonymity, like it could be a healthcare, uh, you know, so I'm not saying it has to be, but you know, the, it, the, once again, it's like the same issues we're facing right now online are just being magnified tenfold with XR. So the pressure to figure this stuff out now, and there is a lot of pressure, right? You're seeing all the big social media companies sure. being sure. tasked by the government to figure it out. That pressure 
um, hopefully they can solve. And I think we need to solve for the next phase, which is XR. Uh, well, it, it does beg the question. Oh, sorry, go ahead, Bob. Uh, there was a global map where you, where the report talked about accelerators like 5G. Was yeah. there a surprise in the findings in terms of the forecast of number of 5G connected devices looking forward in terms of which geographies will lead the adoption of 5G and therefore potentially be leaders in terms of uh, XR? Well, the, the report, it shows like, yeah, 5G, once again, is going to be a big accelerator for XR because you will be able to, you know, right now there's a little bit of lag in terms of whether you're online doing a social VR experience and it should be like way more synchronized and the quality, the realism is going to be intense. But I, it was as expected. I mean, you've got South Korea, Japan, you know, over 70%, you know, up to 80 over 80% will be 5G, I think, by 2023. Oh. I think the U.S. is going to be about 50, over half uh, on 5G. So, um, you know, it's going to be a few years, but I, 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 you know, wasn't super surprised by those findings. I think Asia is definitely ahead of us, right, in, right. in a lot of ways, so. Yeah, it's definitely one of those. And But here, here's the other interesting thing. If, if you think about 5G adoption and you think about where people are going to use it, we think that most of it's going to be private 5G networks for a while, right? Because of, you know, again, the public networks require so much money that people actually, the build out's going to be harder than people realize. And yeah. so these, these areas of where we're actually seeing that interaction, whether it's a customer experience or a dedicated field service or something doing for training, right? Those things are those things at least have some shock, right? I mean, in terms of what's happening. But, but there's a question that you, you guys were raising that's kind of very interesting, which is really about inclusive and affordable access, right? I mean, some countries might not have that capability or even some areas within countries. Um, what, were some of the, uh, what were some of your findings around that as well or, or positions? Yeah, I mean, inclusive, inclusivity and affordable access, once again, is the same ch challenge with that right now with digital. I think that the tech companies are, are doing a pretty decent job of recognizing that. And you know, there's always a push to get devices um, less expensive, more mobile, and that's happening. The networks, um, you know, it's up to the networks to make sure that there's obviously like we were saying 5G or 4G or 3G access, um, but it's something that is top of mind. You know, I. It's interesting though, if you look at what happened with the mobile device and web connectivity, you know, everyone was, you know, a lot of the population, global population didn't have access to the internet. And then the mobile device kind of leapfrogged the PC, right? And suddenly mobile is the number one way people mm -hmm. access the internet. So I can't predict, you know, VR headsets, more so glasses, like a lot of people believe like the glasses are going to be where the kind of future uh, right. device converges from the mobile phone to your glasses. And then, you know, is it easier to get glasses to the world at large, you yeah. know, or yeah. lenses, contact, I mean, you're getting smaller and smaller. I mean, sending lenses out to everyone. I don't know if everyone wants to put lenses in their eyes, but, <laughs> you know, uh, but I think everyone's super cognizant of that, you know, and so that, that's something we have to address. Given, given the fact that the largest mobile device we'll own in the future uh, will be a car, and if the car is level three or better autonomous capable vehicle, whether it's share uh, services like an Uber Lyft or your own car, and all the sensors or cameras that are going in the car and the edge computing potential with 5G, do you see heads up display and really uh, the augmented 
reality being part of the norm experience five, 10 years from now when you're in a car and you can safely look at your environment in near real time. For example, knowing that, you know, this, your favorite restaurant can take, you know, can seat you right now as you're approaching, you know, uh, the, uh, you know uh, uh, buildings and, and, you know, the rocks that you, you, you are inside your car. Yeah, that, that whole space, like autonomous cars as a I don't, channel for communication, I don't know, is really exciting. And, and, you know, they had at CES this year, I don't know if you saw the, this hollow ride concept. Which yeah. Was, yep. Yeah. That's right. yeah. Yeah. That was awesome. and, and it basically had a VR experience in the backseat of a car uh, that was synchronized to the movement of the car so you didn't get sick, right? Um, the Disney thing was amazing. Though. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I 100% believe that figuring out the content inside autonomous cars is, you know, as the cars, it's going to require the cars to sort of change in style and, and how they, they look, right? Make sure the back looks like a limousine for everybody so they can kick back like their own mini office, right? Right. Um, when you don't need to have a driver. But yes, I, you know, those we've all seen kind of clips or visions. There was um, the school bus to Mars, like that was done a few years ago, which with the windows of your car have AR on them. If you can, uh, what's the expression? If you can envision it, it's possible. Absolutely. So I always (laughs) think with this, this space, what's so exciting is if you think you can see it and you think there's a need for it, then it's probably able to, you know, going to happen. And so, yeah, if you're not driving and you're, you know, people get car sick, uh, you know, looking at their mobile devices in right. the car. I, I do myself. And I so, well. yeah. all right, so what do you do in a car if you're not, and then especially if you're not driving, right. I mean, you can talk with the human thing, I guess, look at somebody, but if you're, <laughs> if you're by yourself, yeah, it would be great to have glasses that tell you what, you know, give data around you and headsets that give you, you know, yeah. alternate content. That's, that's what I drive. But hey, if it's going to happen in extended reality, we're going to be talking to Rory Duboff. She is the one to talk to, Managing Director, Head of Content Innovation at Accenture Interactive. Follow her on Twitter at R-O-R-I-D-U-B-O-F-F and on Twitter. So, hey, thanks a lot for being on the show. Thanks about sharing what's happening and your enthusiasm here. So. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much. Hey. Happy Friday, man. Is it real yeah. or is it not real? I mean, is this the Vala, is this the Vala avatar? What's yeah. going on here? Well, going from, you know, augmented or virtual reality to will absolutely be an ambient computing environment with conversational AI. So our next guest is a pioneer and expert in this space. Tracy Malingo is Senior Vice President of Product Strategy at Marin Intelligent Self-Service, where she provided strategic and operational vision on the company's extensive an innovative conversational AI suite. Tracy believes in delivering intelligent solutions to customers and employees so they can build trust relationships and unlock value together. Previously, Tracy was the president of Next IT, the provider of conversational AI for the enterprise, where Tracy guided conversational AI into the mainstream. She's been talking about this way before any of us, so it's awesome to have her on the show. You can follow the work uh, that Tracy's doing and her company on Twitter at Varint, V-E-R-I-N-T. Welcome, Tracy, to the Shrop TV. Hi, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Great to have you. Hey, hey thanks a lot for being on the show. And I just realized that you are a Montana person. So, hey. Are you? Yeah. Are you? 
Are you? I actually was born in Montana, so that's all I can say. More, more things that Wallace never heard about. <laughs> but yeah, so. Oh, hey, you've been a pioneer in this area of conversational AI back when it was like, you know, little minimal NLP. Are these things going to talk to us? What's going to happen? And now we're talking about chatbots and intelligent virtual assistants. Um, so tell us a little bit about what it was like in the early days, like how painful it was uh, and, and how, how we've come a long way. And, and, and really some of the things that we take, take really take for granted in what's happening in this world. Yeah, no, it's, it has been a journey, right? That's for sure. And, and there's certainly been a amount of pain and, and we've come a, a tremendous way. Although in some cases we, we still have a long ways to go, right? So maybe we'll dive into that a little bit later. But if you imagine when we started kind of introducing the idea of really conversational AI, right? Mm -hmm. Because it was taking AI technology and, and leveraging that in a way where you can converse with your machine or your computer and have it perform information for you and, and get you details, et cetera. And so it just so happened it manifested itself, right, within a, a virtual agent or, or a, some kind of bot. Yep. But we would go back in 2005 when we started this and we were selling to large enterprises. And, and a lot of the discussion, quite honestly, was very educational and very inspirational and aspirational, right? We would have like, imagine if you could talk to your computer, right? And imagine if it understood based on your words and your language, not just search terms. And then it could respond back and bring you back information that you needed. And it took focus groups and numerous discussions and meetings and, and reference papers and research papers on how people learn and absorb information to get people over that, that hump. Uh, and then of course, as things progressed, we moved into, uh, you know, once Surrey released, right? That was a watershed moment for all of us. It was both mm -hmm. awesome because we didn't have to do a lot of that education, right? It became a conversation of like, imagine Surrey. I, I finally found a friend that would respond to me. It was amazing at all hours of the night. <laughs> <laughs> so that became kind of a watershed moment of getting people over the hump of like, you can interact in somewhat of a conversational way, right? With your device, whether it be your mobile or computer. And then we moved into kind of the early days of a lot of like knee and elbow scraping on projects to say, okay, how does this really fit into the enterprise and how do we scale this and how do we make it successful and how do we manage it? And, you know, that's been really, I think the last probably five, six years or so has been around those terms. Um, and, and so, you know, we continue to evolve, we continue to get smarter about where and how we apply this and what it means to the business. But, uh, you know, it was 15 years of a lot of education and unfortunately with the market hype and all of the providers and all of the confusing kind of messages that are out there, you know, education is still a big key piece of it is, it, you know, it's been around for some time. You know, I had the privilege of running a global service organization for over 10 years and one of the key lessons was hire for uh, attitude and train for aptitude. Um, the, the, the emotional intelligence. Um, it turns out the soft skills are the hard skills. <laughs> it's really yeah. hard to teach empathy and, and collaboration and active listening and all these things that make a great service professional. So as you're advising chief customer officers or chief marketing or chief executive for that matter, for companies that really take pride in the quality of service that they provide, and so they're hesitant in terms of having machines mm -hmm. that lack of skills <laughs> with their customers because it's, you could quickly drift away from your brand promise. Yeah. So what's, tell us about how you educate these you know, global businesses 
who are investing in intelligent chatbots and minimizing that fear that they're going to tarnish their brand because that soft skill isn't quite perhaps integrated into the technology today? Yeah, no, that's a, it's a great question because it is, it's a real thing that we deal with quite a bit. And interestingly enough, it sounds like Ray and I probably grew up in Montana together. Uh, Val, you and I worked with Cabletron together, right? Like in the mid nineties when you were running that service organization. So here we all are back together on a Friday. But um, you know, when you talk about kind of those, those scoffs, what we need to do as an organization and what we need to talk to our customers about is, is there's lines of demarcation, right, that come along with this. First thing is empathy, right? Like empathy is your kind of your soul and your being. Like, you know, I don't know if we need to train, quite honestly, our, our virtual bots on empathy as much as we need to train them on what are your principles within your, your brand promises and your principles within your organization, right? Those usually fall amongst some kind of key pillars that you can drive some language and actions around. So like, what are those? And then just the standard kind of tone-based soft skills. So if you start to see things come in, whether they be, you know, uh, exclamation points or, or raising a voice or repeating of questions or profanity or whatever that is, how do you deal with that in kind of an immediate way to make sure that you're addressing it? So the things we try to talk to customers about is, you know, let's get out of kind of the, the empathy discussion and let's get more into how do we, how do we um, configure and support those brand pillars, right? They can be things like transparency or humility or those are some of our brand pillars, right? And so you can build conversations to make sure that you're providing those types of information. And then let's make sure we understand the tone and that we have that built in so that if for some reason a conversation is, is seemingly going a little bit off the rails in some way, how do we immediately get that to somebody within the organization to take care of in a seamless way? Um, so we do a lot of that kind of education. It's a lot of tampering down of, of kind of this, this hype and this crazy, right, that is out there that comes, you know, no offense, but from like the board down to everybody who has to deploy with like just a go do AI. And then you have all of these <laughs> real world things you need to address, right, in order to make it happen. Hey, you know, dystopian. It's amazing that machine learning algorithms are so powerful today that you can build models that detect tone and sentiment like you, that, like you referenced. And you can't have exception-based handling where if you detect tone and sentiment that's heading in the wrong direction, you have a hybrid model where exception-based handling gets you to a human being quickly. Um, yes. And that radical transparency where Ray mentioned in the previous segment where you're upfront with the client saying that you are interacting with uh, an, an, a smart chat bot. And if at any point you choose to want to speak to um, a person, that option is available to you. So go ahead, Ray. I, I just think that it's real and it's very powerful. So you can overcome these concerns because the technology can, is there today to, to, to help you deliver a, a, an exceptional experience. Yeah, I was gonna say just really quick. I mean, technology is beautiful, right? Like been in it 25 years, you all have been in it for a long. I mean, you can do anything that you, that you want to do. Uh, that's not the challenge, right? The challenge is, is how do you take this and, and really apply this to the business in the way that makes the most sense for your organization. And, and that's, both the fun part and in the challenging part. Well, yeah, and, and I mean, you know, take the dystopian sci-fi pieces away from here, right? But the, but but there there are some interesting issues, right? Or some core questions people have to figure out, right? Is there, and this is coming from Alan Berkson, he's at Freshworks. He's like, is there a recruiting profile for a virtual assistant bot, right? Are we really trying to do that? Or, or do we just craft it, right, as, as a spec, 
right? In terms of what you're trying to do to, to bring people in. And, and I think those are gonna be some interesting questions as well, um, you know, in terms of how, how to address it. I mean, are you guys building like different types of profiles for certain types of bots to fit certain types of, uh, you know, you know, scenarios? Like, do you guys do that right now? Like, you're more friendly, <laughs> you're more mean, you're more New England. <laughs> you know, that'd be awesome. Um, I may pick that up as a, as a project here this weekend, but you know, the things that we do on this is really focus around I would say the use cases and the subject matter expertise that's available. So when we talk a little bit and we talk about kind of our, our direction on where we're going and it's around orchestration, right? Companies, a lot of companies even have a lot of different bots out there performing different things. And so how do you orchestrate that behavior in a way that that's really going to drive what you need to? And so in order to do that, you start taking a look kind of at your, your user personas and your consumer personas, and you start applying that to, to subject matter expertise. And, and maybe you want a separate bot or, or an individual, right, a, a virtual assistant that really is, is kind of a master of that piece of it. And so you can transfer to them for that part of that conversation. And then let's say the conversation takes another turn and you need to go someplace else. And you can transfer that to a different bot that handles that kind of subject matter expertise. And then how do you orchestrate all those conversations into insights for the business? So we've done some interesting things where uh, just even think of you guys, I, the previous segment was awesome, Rory, fantastic, right? Like I get too motion sick. So I'm like trying to figure out how this whole thing's gonna work for me. But, <laughs> Well, you know, one of the things that they brought up were, were cars, right? So let's imagine in that situation, like you, you go want to purchase a new car. You could have a, a sales bot, right? That has all of the information on promotions and what you're doing and what kind of car is the best for you based on your requirements. And then perhaps you have a financing bot and then you could have a service bot. And then you could, so there's all these ways that you can inject kind of subject matter expertise within certain creations. Mm -hmm. uh, the challenge with that, right, is then- and like, how do you take all those conversations and drive to what is areas of friction within the business that you can support and drive insight to and transform and, and other things that you can take a look at. So we love it. Enterprise companies have, have tons of bots. Like, you know, we're not the only one in there. I wish we were, but we're not. Like, it's not that world. So, you know, taking all these different uh, aspects and, and intelligence and, and combining in them and working together with them is something that, you know, we're very focused on. This is amazing because, you know, as you're, as you're talking, I'm, I'm thinking of like scenario planning for companies where there's a scenario where every application has its own smart bot, one scenario. There's an app, the second scenario is there's life yeah. work bot. So group of bots for your life and then a group of bots for your business. And then the last scenario is a universal bot where life and work is integrated. But in that scenario, there's a parent-child relationship where there's the master bot and it goes to all the child bots <laughs> and the question for me is or, or the thinking is if a company can position themselves to be the parent bot connected to all the child bots you are hearing raw information coming from the end user whereas the children bots are getting filtered information so whoever positioned themselves as the parent bot has the most contextual intelligence about the end user Okay, you're letting out my secrets now. Like, if we can't get too far down, down what that is. But if, you, but if you think about that orchestration, right? And then you yeah, think yeah, about, yeah. you know, okay, why did uh, Next IT, a conversational AI company, uh, partner up with Barrett, right? It, it, who's an actionable intelligence company and what they have. Well, let me tell you why. A couple of years ago, it was very clear to us. Like, what does this future look like? It's really this very interesting, intricated, you know, hybrid workforce. And so if you talk about the, that orchestration level, which we believe is, is really what is to kind of to come and manage, 
who better to help orchestrate that than the experts in workforce management and optimization and how you do that. And so, uh, you know, we could schedule another show to, to tell some more secrets, but, <laughs> but if you think about where are we going with our artificial intelligence and how do we infuse it and where do we infuse it and where's the value for the business, it's all around that intelligence piece and, and how we act and engage with every section of it. And we believe that the proliferation of this type of technology there is going to have to be some some management and optimization and, and you know we're out right like we're excited about it wow. well hey let's talk about another thing that's kind of related when we do these deployments right most mm -hmm. people jump in because it's reductive right we're driving down costs we're improving cycle times uh we're improving efficiency right we're you know reducing work shifts uh we're deploying you know people in a different way but you see ai as a bigger opportunity as being an additive effect uh to drive innovation and growth uh why is that yeah, so, so, you know, it's kind of a cycle of early adopter selling and, and, and early adopter, you know, adoption of technology. You really have to drive kind of an ROI that you can go show the boss's bosses, right? So you continue to like move forward and get funded out of pilot phase into production phase. And, and when you take a look at those, you know, the, the reduction of, of costs is, is the lowest hanging fruit. And when you think about automation, AI, right? Like there's ways to automate, there's low hanging fruit, you can do that. And so that's really been a lot of the focus of everyone. And um, you know, there's certainly benefit and value in that, right? Like that's awesome. Let's save money to invest in new areas. Love the story, right? But if yep. you think about true artificial intelligence, or if you think about augmented intelligence, as some people like to refer to, or actionable intelligence, right? Like all these A words with intelligence. But if you think about that, you know, what we're saying is, in theory, we want to emulate like what your best human performers do. And when you put the hat on of, you know, we're not here to, to you know, optimize or make efficient, we're here to emulate what your best humans do. There's a, a ton of additive solutions right that you can come up with. If you think about, for example, and we see some great results with our customer at Dell, let's look at cross-sell and upsell. So if, if you're looking to engage with a, a chat agent or a call center agent or in the store and, and the company has, has done all the beautiful work because they have all the data. So they know that on this day with this person and this weather channel, like, you know, the, if you offer this, 80% will take it, right? Like that data is there, right? <laughs> and you give that to your sales folks and, and you hope that, you know, they didn't get a speeding ticket on the way to work and like everything's good at home and like everything's and that they make that offer. It's inconsistent sometimes, right? Like you can't control how that works. However, if you have a, a virtual assistant who's driving human emulation, who also has those rules fed into them, and you program offer it every single time, right? You have a hundred percent offer and then your take rate becomes higher. And so when you take a look at that from sales and conversion to brand loyalty to, to whatever that looks like from an additive approach, there's a real kind of next level beautiful thing you can do uh, by programming that in, in, in ways that don't just focus on reduction and efficiency. And, and those are great ways to fund those projects, but, uh, you know, that's where it becomes really intriguing, right, for, for organizations and, and has more material impact, I think. That's, that's awesome. I 100% agree. And um, my final question, I mean, I, you're a futurist. Obviously, you've been working in this space long before any of us. And uh, so I'm going to ask you, um, you know, by next year, it's projected, projected that at one in three homes in the U.S. will have a smart speaker. Yes. Uh, this notion of ambient computing where no one wants to type anymore or tap or swipe. They just want to talk yeah. and, and glean insights. And not just at home, they want that at, at work as well. So take us to five years from now. What will 
conversational AI look like? What can we anticipate in terms of business benefits and, 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 and then future work implications because we can talk to things and be more productive and more informed? Yeah, awesome. So I, I think there's probably three areas, right, that we, we explore with what that five-year plan looks like. Uh, the, the first one is just a matter of, uh, you know, the workforce, right, and, and how people are growing up and what they look like. And we talk a lot about kind of digital natives and the impact that they've had on businesses and enterprises and what's going on. Um, we're doing some research and doing some research with some of the folks here on, on the impact that AI natives are going to bring to the enterprise business and what that looks like, right? So, whereas you have folks who, you know, coming into the workplace and demanding different technology and different kind of work life and what that is, we're seeing and we believe, right, like that next five years, there's going to be another fundamental shift within enterprises and organizations because you're going to have these AI natives, right? And they're going to expect machines to do things for them and to be able to just talk to them as they walk by and understand what that looks like. And so we think that's, a, that's an interesting thing to keep an eye on. This, the second theme is really around kind of this parallel notion of not only is technology going to get better, you know, I hope it does, right? Like we all hope it continues to advance, but enterprises are going to get better with AI. And what does that mean? It means that they're going to be more jointly kind of working together and moving forward in order to drive really kind of transformational insights into the business. Never before, right, have we been able to capture just 24-7 conversational insights from our customers all the time. And the technology is there to do it. And the challenge right now, which is kind of our one and three year challenge, is really around how do you take those insights and really drive towards those friction points and, and, and transform the business to do those things? So it's going to be a kind of a joint uh, progression of both technology and enterprise maturity when it comes to that. And then I would say probably the final thing that we're keeping an eye on is, man, this resourcing challenge, right? Like, how do enterprises resource for this? And there's the idea of the hybrid workforce. And so that, that does a lot of things. And again, that's why I think we're excited about the position we're in with workforce optimization management. But there's also the things such as, uh, you know, how do you, how do you train this effectively, right? And, and what are the real resources that you need? Is it really data scientists? Or are we going to be a little bit more transparent and hand more control over to the business with our AI technology? And then we need things like conversational analysts instead of, you know, BIs and data scientists. So like that whole transformation of what the skill set is, that's going to have to make this successful. I think we're going to see a lot of motion on that. I think people are going to be pretty surprised in a couple of years to be like, I have a, I have a group of fantastic, right, engineers and data scientists who can build this thing, but if they don't know what they're building for and they don't know how it impacts the business, I'm not really getting out of it what I need to. And so those three streams, I think, when we take a look at kind of one, three, and five is where we're spending most of our time and a lot of our research work to make sure that we're staying ahead of the curve on, so. Amazing. Well, we're going to hear about AI or what's next. We're going to hear it from here. So <laughs> thank you so much for uh, being on the show. Tracy Malingo, SVP. Happy Friday, everyone. Have a good one. Thank you so much. That was great. That was great. Follow her company at next underscore IT. Thank you so much for being on the show, Tracy. Thank you, Tracy. Wow. Great. AI natives. <laughs> Watch out. <laughs> I don't know. Watch out. We don't know who they are, actually. <laughs> That's a little bit scarier. That's awesome. That's awesome. Andrew, keep an eye on those AI natives. Our oh, I, I, I might be an AI native soon. I'm, I'm a full <laughs> <Yeah. lead. laughs> This is our cleanup hitter awesome. where we bring someone at the end to hit a home run and bring us home. Andrew Nebus, Senior Principal SME 
at ASRC Federal. ASRC Federal delivers a wide range of services to help U.S. federal government customers execute their critical missions. I believe fifth or sixth largest cloud provider in the federal space. Andrew will talk to us about that. Prior to ASRC, Andrew has served as command staff and CIO at Baltimore City Police Department, TAC officer in New Jersey Transit Police, and CIO of Edison, New Jersey. So an incredibly accomplished CIO. Andrew helps his clients develop high-performance teams and executive strategy. He advises on the impact of digital transformation, evidence-based decision-making, AI data privacy, blockchain chatbots, and how digital disruption overcomes legacy organizational culture. Culture, culture, culture. Probably the most important thing before we get into tech. You can follow Andrew on Twitter at A-N-D-R-E-W-N-E-V-U-S. Welcome back, Andrew, to Disrupt TV. Thanks, thanks for having me. It's super exciting to be back. Actually, it's it's hard because you have two guests on before me and it's a fire hose of information. I'm like, this and this and this. Oh, that's a great point. I got to write that down. And it's, it's, it's oh, it's the Fridays are over. Do that. I mean, our last guest talked about AI. And, and so, yeah, go ahead, Ray. Start with the questions. But yeah, I'm sure Andrew was taking lots of notes. Hey, no problem. Hey, Andrew, great to see you again. And here's the thing, right? There's some factors around AI and AI success that we are starting to see before you even get started, right? We these projects we keep talking about them. People keep trying to get you know the, the data around it. We've done a lot of POCs, but we're now at a point where people actually have learned some lessons. So tell us a little bit what you've seen in the field and you know in your personal experience as well. Yeah, so uh, uh, you know I think there are, are seven or so factors people always talk about. You know, data, mass computing, time, talent, etc. Right? Um, and what I said the two big ones. Uh, because massive compute, you could buy that theoretically now, right? Uh, uh, time is time. Um, talent, always a challenge, but, you know, SRC provides people, so we don't have that problem. Um, but the largest purpose of data, which is really first, right? You're training this model, and how do you do it? And then how do you do it in a way that uh, is predictable and you know what it's doing? So what I'm seeing is a real uptick in the interest in synthetic data, right? It's, it's creating data that looks and acts and feels real, but is not real. So you can train your model and then use it in the real world and it, you haven't uh, uh, you know, destroyed your model because it already knows what's gonna see. Um, so that's huge. And the second, massive computing power, right? So I said that was pretty much solved, but in government anyway, and a lot of agencies, uh, a lot of corporations, it's not yet. Um, the trend is this morning, uh, um, the, the courts ruled that um, Jedi, which is the-, yeah. the yep. Events purchase of supercomputing or cloud computing can move forward. So, August, I guess will be the decision, right? Yeah, Oracle's out. So it's it's Microsoft or AWS mm -hmm. is yeah. going to run that. That is going to be huge because it provides this massive computing power, cloud scalable to the federal government to make these decisions in, in defense, which is huge. And that is going to provide a ton of uh, uh, money, interest, attention into AI in government. So it's going to be a, an amazing ten years. Wow. You're a former CIO that, that served in uh, incredible pressure cooker environments. Um, not, not, not because you, know, you, were, you were serving citizens at large scale, you had, you had I'm sure, political, cultural process challenges to, and, and I know you're a, you know, a renowned change agent, someone who doesn't like to stand still at all and is always forward looking. So now you advise CIOs. Um, so the former CIO, take, Compare the advice you're providing today to a trailblazer modern CIO uh, to five years ago when you were CIO. What's changed? What's changed in the landscape? Oh, it's, it's sort of interesting, right? So I have a, um, a, 
a photo and I'll, I'll see if I, it, it's scrubbed enough to share, but from five years ago when I was at Baltimore City Police, right. and I had, here are my factors, here's this, here's what I'm thinking of, and it really, it, it comes down to mostly the same things. I'm like, sensors, uh, uh, algorithms, like, you called it different things, but it's the yeah. same things. It's getting more robust. If you look at, like, what Tracy was talking about is, you know, uh, uh, it was pretty ugly back in the day. Anything we were doing uh, was ugly. I can't even imagine 10 years ago she was talking about <laughs> compositional, you know, chatbots. As oh, a yeah, I mean, officer, I would have said, come back to me in 10 years. I wouldn't believe that the technology yeah. was there for me to use it. Today, that's a different story. What's super exciting today, actually, is I can go to CIOs and say, hey, that crazy idea we had before that was kind of weird, funky, is real. I actually talked to, um, uh, I don't know if I, I should name him, but uh, someone in the federal government this week who said, uh, <laughs> F chatbots, if I hear another robot mispronounce my name, I'm going to throw you out of here. No more zeros and ones. Get it out of here. Yeah. And wow. that's cool, because back in the day, it was terrible. And if you don't have the diversity, it's going to say, Instead of Bala Asher, I'll say, you know, I, I don't even know how that would be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure you've heard Bala it. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> you've got so much better in that decade, whereas now it's like, you know what? It knows how to pronounce your names. It knows you just like, can't even get my name right, so. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, that might be on hey, purpose. I couldn't even get your name right. I, I, I didn't call you Wong until maybe a year ago. <laughs> but yeah, we, we have improved so much. So the same tenants that I was thinking about that long ago, the same but look, we need uh, uh, social network analysis, we need this, we need this, uh, are pretty much the same now, which is nice because a lot of my material is still valid. Um, um, but it's also great because people can actually do it. Back then it was, okay, we need to spend two years on NLP and just to get chat working. And now it's, oh, I have services. Uh, it's embedded inside platforms as a service that I can say, okay, let's extend in this little way and get moving forward. So I don't need to build everything. I, I know people who did, who paused any real forward momentum on their actual project because they were building NLP engines or chat engines or how does this framework work for bots? And it's like, you know, now it's, it's not quite off the shelf, but it's, it's pretty much there. I mean, the, the, the point now is developers can use these platforms, experiment and play and show business value. So they can decide, it's like, yeah, let's double down. And sometimes it's, Hey, we got 90%. We need a really custom AI piece for our business separate from yours. That's not relevant, but you can get a lot of value and get a lot of momentum. And again, show that additive capability, not just the reduction, not just, Oh, I don't need people anymore. I, I, the help desk is, is all this chat bot now. It's like, no, no, you, you, you make that amazing. And then you can start adding like, what is that high touch service we could provide? That's really more important. The, um, you know this is going to be impactful. So let me talk to you about the security changes in advance. So the help desk isn't doing bad things. It's doing really, really good, excellent things. So, uh, you know, I, I think it was. I'm thinking about the this past hour of us five, uh, our, our previous two guests and us three. Yep. So you have an Asian, Middle Eastern, I don't know your ethnicity, two women, three men, fairly diverse group of technologists. But that's not a representation of folks that are writing these algorithms today. We don't have that diversity yeah. in the folks that are creating this autonomous automated logic. So do you fear, do your clients fear that there are biases built into these chatbots and automated workflows in this autonomous world where we're going to have these blind spots because we don't have uh, a diverse group uh, of folks, whether it's, it's gender, geography, whatever it may be, age, working on these algorithms? Well, I think it's twofold. Uh, uh, so I believe it's a real issue, right? I, I, I bring a diverse set of people of both candidates for positions that we fill, 
in this space and um, making decisions. I, I don't want to want to report to the, the highest paid person who happens to be a white male or, or, or whatnot. Um, so that's super important. But we also look at bias in the system itself, right? Because it's, it's learning. And if we don't look at explainability, both on a large group level of AI and on that individual decision level, uh, we can get really, really off. So in, in 2017, there was actually an AI program for image recognition. And what it did, it was looking at uh, horses to identify what kind of horse it was. Um, and it was amazing. It was like dead on. It was great. It, the training model was phenomenal. But they started turning to real photos and it was wrong and random. And what it turned out was it figured out the copyright tag on the image metadata was how to identify. So I was like, oh, that, that's how you tell what a horse is a horse and, and, and what kind of horse it is. Mark. So it's again that, that group level explainability and individual level so that we know the biases we're embedding. So we look at um, uh, for me, every process we have, every um, company decision, agency decision, were baked at a time when tech was X. Even, you know, Salesforce is 10, 11 years old, whatever it is. Some of that stuff is baked from the beginning. It's, it's, it's just, that's the decision you had to make at the time to move forward, right? The decision today would be a little different. So we look at, in the United States, we have a, a credit system that uses these markers and information because that's what they had back when it was forming. And then you look today at the social credit system in, in uh, China, where everyone's like, oh, it's looking at social media and this and all these sensors and all this data and what you're doing. And, uh, and people here freak out. I'm like, you know, that's probably how we would have designed it if we had those tools. Uh, 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 and again, our, our, our ethos is a little different, but it really is like, we built what we could at the time. Technology was available. We reduced our outcome to that. Um, and going forward, it's that same uh, uh, disruption of do we replace our old process? Do we say, hey, how we did things before uh, are useless, throw them out because this is better. Like self-driving cars, I think, changes a lot yeah. in the decisions we made and, and things like that. And what we need to do now is include diverse people that were not included before in how we decided how does do roads work? How do we invest in infrastructure? How do we connect cities? How do we connect people? I mean, people of, of, of different um, cultures were not included on you know, where BWI airport is. They, they was like, oh, there's land. We get it. You know, so we need to do that as we replace these legacy systems. Uh, or we'll get to we have now baked in faster. Do you, you, you guys think 10 years from now we'll have a president who believes in cryptocurrency? No, I don't know. We'll see what happens. All right. but, but here, I'm still trying to get my AI to figure out, is that a chihuahua or is that a muffin? But uh, yeah, remember that old thing that's going on. So, but, but hey, I mean, you know, Andrew, I mean, is AI really going to improve the employee experience or are we just going to be enslaved by our AIs, right? I mean, that, that's well, I mean, that now, uh, after the last two guests, I totally believe uh, uh, in a lot of ways, right? But uh, so... Early example for me is AI and ML being used um, internally to recommend different data visualizations to people. So instead of just looking at this data and I have this old stale chart and whatever, I always do this month, 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 month. Um, there are platforms now that are recommending, oh, well, this chart's actually more insightful for you. And you're looking for this anomaly, so look this way at this data. So instead of trying to find a whole bunch of people who are really amazing at data analysis, now the tools and the AI is starting to recommend those so we can really democratize that access and democratize that 
data knowledge. So it's a really interesting, you know, before we were like, you need a, a lot of really super smart data people. Like, oh my God, if you don't, you're, you're going to fall behind. And now it's like the, okay, you need some, they need to understand what's going on and you understand the context and everything else. But your tool can help most of your business people. I mean, uh, especially at super large organizations, you have people very, very good at certain areas. And it's like, well, do they also need to be a mathematician? Well, no, probably not. You know, I hope not. Otherwise, we're all at work, right? Um, but, you know, those tools I found really, really good and helpful. Um, and you also look at robotic process automation, which is huge. And it's not just for, as, as Tracy said, those, those reduction in costs. Those are great to, to sell and make uh, uh, make big products go forward, but it's really about how do we add experiences and how do we add that customization at scale and, and how do we loop in all these abstract things so it's a, more of an infinite ambient orchestration of services and delivery and, and things like that where it was not possible before. Uh, what I will ask though, if people out there have done really amazing things with AI and future of work and employee experience, uh, take a look. I think today is the deadline for the Supernova Awards. I'm a judge in that category. So I <laughs> really amazing stuff. Like really. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> but, but hey, the, 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 the macro problem here is, is something all three guests were talking about, but we never really touched upon it, which is we're dealing with a battle between open and decentralized systems and centralized and closed systems. And what we're trying to figure out is which is going to win. It's almost like the Cold War that was happening uh, about communism versus democracy. And, and we're about to enter those same type of conversations at a global scale. And yet we have no institutions that are going to take us there at this moment. We ha don't have a good framework to think about how that's going to be set up. Uh, and, and we've got, you know, I mean, this is something that should be happening you know, around the world to say, hey, which systems do we believe in? Yet we're kind of like saying, oh, it's really great to be in China. The social credit system is amazing. Or we're like, oh, the social credit system is horrible, right? Um, yeah. or, or blockchain or back to your point on cryptocurrencies, like are cryptocurrencies good or bad? I mean, I mean, my, my personal view is we're basically allowing people to store money in cryptocurrencies because the entire world printed so much money, they need a store. Right. You need an asset store to absorb all that money that's been printed around the world. Otherwise, there's no other vehicle. Right. But, but there's other things that are actually happening um, that are all going to be related back to this as to what's ethical, what's not, which systems do we believe in. Right. There's going to be hybrids between open, decentralized and open and you know, open and centralized. Right. So we're going to see those things start to emerge. And it's going to be interesting to see how how as society uh, we value which type of system or we enable which type of system to be some more successful. Yeah, I, think, I think that technology has given us an opportunity to challenge dominant logic. Dominant logic 10 years ago said you weren't going to get a ride in a stranger's car. Dominant logic said no one's going to rent their property to a stranger. Dominant <laughs> logic is why Blockbuster didn't buy Netflix for 50 million in 2000 because people like to come in stores and look at boxes and pay late fees. So, so I think ultimately, <laughs> so ultimately, I think the logic direction is so unprecedented that governments, regulatory, regulatory bodies can't keep up. So you're going to see that lag and it's going to be companies that are going to take advantage and ultimately challenge dominant logic and define new paradigms. Yeah. Well, well what I'll say there though is, is there's sometimes we do have to take a pause and say, okay, regulatory bodies, and it could be government, industry, whatever, how to come in there and, and, and start saying things like, uh, so one thing I like to uh, uh, talk about, I get asked about a lot is, you know, who's building Terminator, right? Because uh, we do a lot of DOD work. And the truth is everyone is. Everyone is building components that will do this. And then you start saying, well, you know, at first we'll just detect it and then we'll have a human say yes, no. 
But humans, uh, and if you drive a, a Tesla uh, uh, or if you've been in one, eventually it recommends lane changing and you say yes, yeah. And eventually you say, yeah, whatever. It, you know better. You're making this decision better. Yeah. In warfare, though, it's even more intense. It's more like more information. So you're just going to say, yes, you know better. Do that. And eventually, that's going to take the human out of the loop. We're going to say, look, the human always says yes. So just automate it. Automate that kill decision. Um, uh, so uh, two of the people I work with, Aaron Dan and, and Bill Feldman from ANSRC Federal and uh, Aaron Massey from University of Maryland actually wrote a paper recently about that, about saying, look, we're going to explore AI in the kill chain and how it's going to happen. We're moving that way. And their result was just like you said, like, hey, we have to pause. We have to regulate this. We have to ban this because it is going to happen otherwise. If you don't insert a human in the process, right, at the beginning or the end, then it will be automated, right? Yeah, but so I, actually, their paper was, even if you do in the short term, you'll still be automated. It's going to be so, yes. How many minutes do pilots actually pilot a plane? First five minutes up, last five minutes down. Yeah. <laughs> at the end of the day, I believe. and I Everything else they trust. But 98% of the entire experience is, is fully automated. Um, yeah, and it gets to that point where... Some of the NASDAQ trades are completely autonomous. Um, yeah, so eventually re you remove friction in a very deterministic way. But absolutely, you do need humans to be involved in something. And, that, and that's where we need to get together <laughs> and say, we want regulation and prohibition of this. Yeah. We don't want chemical, biological weapons. We also don't want automatic AI weapons, you know, and, and things like that. And that's hey, where... Who thought my robotic tractor was going to be used somewhere else? I mean, hey, uh, you know. <laughs> we to get to and be honest with each other and say, this is when we need regulation. As, as well as I said, sometimes it takes a long time and for good reason. We don't re want regulation to stifle us. But in this case, I think we do. I think we want uh, uh, countries around the world to say, we, we are not going to play that game. Ethical and human use of technology will be the perhaps biggest challenge for companies moving yeah. Yeah. You look at that, and, and we're here, and we're here with Andrew Nebus, Senior Principal, SME, Trusted Advisor at ASRC Federal, a multiple constellation connected enterprise attendee and alumnus. So you can follow him on Twitter at Andrew Nebus, and E-B-U-S. Thank you so much for being on the show, and thank you for sharing your thoughts on AI. So. Andrew, you were terrific. Thank you so much. And thank you for having a picture of me when I was younger behind you with the goatee. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we might have to take that down. I'm just kidding. <laughs> so, but hey, what's going on next week, man? Episode 155. We got a great clue. Yes. So we have Sharon Liu, Principal Executive Chief for the Committee for Future Technology at U.S. Department of Education as our guest. We have Manoj Kadi, uh, founder and CEO of Greenlight Credentials. And we have Phil Kermani, Vice President of Innovation at Salesforce. So bring your popcorn and buckle your seatbelts. Next week's show is going to be as amazing as this week's show with three incredible guests. Ray, your closing remarks. You know, I, we're entering this very interesting age. And, and the thing I'm talking about here is going to be quite prevalent. We're going to need frameworks as we start defining what's going to happen organically. And it's also going to happen in a managed way about what it means to be an open, decentralized system and what it means to be in a closed, uh, you know, in, in a closed centralized model. And, and I think we're gonna see that happen very, very quickly as we see the US versus China model occur. Mm -hmm. And this is happening in each one of our digital technologies, what it means to society, economics, uh, you know, and, and really what's happening uh, to, to business as well. And so we're gonna see that happen very quickly. And, and it's gonna be interesting to watch uh, and you'll probably see it here in different episodes as we go forward. Absolutely. 
as you as you invite three four hundred of the top executives around the world at Constellation um, events in, uh, in in October, is there a theme that's that you're you're thinking about the overarching theme of the conference? You know, it's a great question. We've been thinking a lot about what we should be talking about. And as we talked about last year, we spent a lot of time talking about what it meant to be in that post-digital age last year. This year, the theme's a little bit different, right? The theme is thinking about um, the business models that are around this event. Mm. And, and I think when we think about what those business models may mean, uh, that's really kind of what it is. We're talking about exponential business models, really moving from what we call these digital divides to winner-takes-all networks. And so we're talking about, you know, what happens when we exacerbate the gap between winners and losers, how digital divide, you know, fades, right? I mean, exponential business models are actually going to change the way we work. It's going to change the way we look at networks. And, and I think it's really going to think about what these models are. So we're going to touch upon those, of course, the technologies and of course, what's happening uh, to uh, individual roles as they support these new business models going forward. And the Constellation Connect Enterprise is actually first week in November. I said October because I want to get there early because the event <laughs> is the day and I just want to get there early. <laughs> so November 4th through 7th for those that are looking at it. So Absolutely. yeah, so definitely. But hey, thanks a lot, Vala. You know, and it's awesome Friday as well. So thanks everyone. If it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.